0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today. We've got a big show coming. The markets, as some of you may have noticed, are in a bit of a free fall today in the grains. We're gonna check in with Brian Split of agmarket.net about what's developing there in just a minute. Then in segment two, we're gonna talk to Tanner Bramer of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Senate Ag Committee did some work on bills that could impact the cattle industry yesterday. Tanner will bring us up to speed on what happened there in DC. And then in segment three, we're gonna talk with Nick Sullivan. He's a researcher and a professor at Tufts University and keeps track of the aquaculture markets and thinks there's a lot of room for aquaculture to expand in this country. He'll share those insights later on and at the end of the show we're going to check in with Mike Steenhook, the executive director of the Soy Transportation Coalition about the gas tax holiday proposed yesterday by President Biden. What it could mean for consumers and importantly what it could mean for infrastructure as we look to rejuvenate that across rural America. Before we get to all of that though let's talk about about these markets, which saw some weakness develop earlier in the overnight, and that weakness has continued. Joining me now is Brian Split. Brian, what's happening
2: today in the ag trade? Hey, Mike. Yeah, we're doing all kinds of chart damage today, and, and we've been doing so. Uh, really, the wheat market was the first one to uh, what I would consider take out major support. Um, so, if you think back to when we had Memorial Day weekend, and we came out of that weekend sharply lower across the board. Uh, we put in some pretty strong lows at the beginning of the month of June. And so wheat was the first market, winter wheat, to take out those June lows and then take out its 100-day moving average. So it's really leading the way to the downside. Um, now, we, this week saw the soybean market do the same. Yesterday, we took out the June lows. We took out the uptrend uh, that's been in place since April, uh, and we took out the 100-day Uh, And so now we're seeing that happen in corn today. Uh, We took out the June lows, uh, that was at 682. And so here we are, that same session, now 20 cents below that, we're down 30 cents on these corn. Um, And you definitely have an element, not only of a change in the, uh, the weather pattern, but also I think more importantly for the big picture, a change from the standpoint of the Federal Reserve And uh, this is a market right now where they want to get inflation under control. Uh, They are in charge. And uh, if you are in the mood of not fighting the Fed, um, you do not want to be long commodities.
0: No, you certainly don't. And I think what has surprised me, Brian, watching this market move here really over the past month is from May 17th until today, we've given up $3 in Chicago wheat September. I mean, now that we've broken down through those important trend lines, what's the next leg lower should it happen?
2: Uh, So this September, Chicago wheat um, has a a very important level. Um, Just under us, we had some lows made in March. Uh, one set was at 961 and one set was at 958. Uh, that 958 low was right before the quarterly stocks and planting intentions report. We've got a low today of 960 and three quarters. Uh, should we hold here? And we very well might. Uh, we're, we're getting extremely oversold here. Uh, so if we can catch in this area, I don't see why we might not be able to bounce back up. Uh, maybe to the 1030 to 1040 area on this contract and that's going to be some stiff resistance. But uh, I, I would venture to say that if we just fall right through these, these lows that were made in March, um, you're probably going down to about 850 and you're going to see another dollar come out of this market because these rallies, were, there's no traffic. This is when we went straight up during the invasion. Um, so there's not traffic, there's not consolidation to go look at again. You're just going to drop right through it like an elevator shaft.
0: Well, that drop is also carrying on in the corn market today. We've got old crop down 14, new crop down 22. I mean, run us through again that, that same leg If this weakness continues here, Brian. What's the risk for corn in the short term?
2: Well, you've got uh, all these little levels that were, were kind of established on the way up in corn. And, and that rally was a little bit more orderly than it was in wheat. Um, because the wheat was the market was so focused on wheat during the invasion of Ukraine, but uh, you're going to have some support here at this 660 area. Uh, we had some highs in mid-March at 658. Uh, this is an area that uh, should be a, a decent little shelf. Now, if you drop through that, um, I, I think you're looking at really um, a sh- the low end of that shelf. And this is back in March, was down around 630. So if this market does keep going through this area, uh, you're looking at another 30 cents to 6.30. Uh, If we get through the 6.30 area, I think you're looking at the low the day after the invasion, uh, 5.77 and a quarter. And let's not forget, there's a gap that was left down there back at early February at 5.74 and a quarter. So if the market wants to go looking to fill a gap. Uh, I know there's one above us. We just left it at 7.28 and a quarter coming out of the weekend, but we do have a major gap below us uh, from February. So if we go on bear market mode, that's going to be the target all the technicians are looking for.
0: Oh, yeah. Watch those gaps. They do get filled. Brian, soybeans going through the exact same phenomenon today. We're seeing big declines both in old and new crop. Again, is this just inflation fears leaving the market as the recession fears
3: well,
2: so I think there 's a ton of different elements in here, and the inflation recession is one side of it, and that 's a major money flow issue and and the funds have been maintaining a long position and I think they wanted to see what the weather was going to look like because for the where the balance sheets look like they are right now, we knew that if we did have a legitimate weather problem this year that um, that our stocks were going to tighten up further, the stocks to use numbers would support higher prices. but I think now that it appears that the forecast has flipped and we don't have that concern of a major hot and dry event Um, that the funds because of that over hanging you know Federal Reserve issue uh, are now selling their their long positions very very aggressively Um, so when I look at the November soybeans uh, you know today we're taking out the May lows Um, so here's something that I think everybody needs to be mindful of that's listening to this Um, and if you think charts matter and you think the guys in New York that are trading this stuff and that, that they follow charts, there's a, a monthly key reversal in November soybeans. So to begin the month we made new contract highs up to 1584 and three quarters. Overnight we took out the May low. Um, so now you've got the month of June made new contract highs and now is trading below the previous month's lows. That's a bad sign. Um, so below 1438 and a quarter at the end of the month is bad. Uh, And below $14 is even worse. You've got these lows that were made on April 1st. And I think if you see the other side of those lows, we're going right back into the $12.50 to $13 price zone.
0: All right. I know YagMarket.net also just published your acreage expectations for next Thursday. Brian, what do you think? We're going to see more soybean acres?
2: Uh, you know what? We actually had a, a touch more on both corn and on soybean acres. So the uh, the planting intention number from the USDA back in March on soybeans was 90.96 million acres. Uh, we made a very, very slight revision higher to 91.1. And uh, on corn, the USDA planting intention number was 89.49. Uh, our corn acreage number was 89.7. So again, a very, very slight increase. Um, And and we're very well aware there's been areas in the Corn Belt where we've lost some acres. We also realize high commodity prices, talking to our customers in every corner of the Corn Belt. We've probably picked up some acres in in some areas as well.
0: All right, we'll see how that verifies next Thursday on the 30th for that final acreage number. Brian Split of AgMarket.net, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Mike, appreciate it. And folks, stick around. Tanner Bremer of NCBA will join us when we return. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America.
4: Don't go away, more AOA coming right up. Hi, I'm Secretary Tom Vilsack. In my 40 plus years of experience in the ag industry, I have seen firsthand the tremendous value and influence of the census of agriculture. A complete count of our farms, ranches, and the people who operate them that tells the story of U.S. agriculture. It highlights trends, needs, and the great impact agriculture has on every American as well as folks around the world. Ag census data also informs federal, state, and local decisions that will affect you and your operations for years to come. If you're an ag producer, no matter the size of your operation, urban or rural, and you did not receive the 2017 Census of Agriculture and did not receive other USDA surveys, you still have time to sign up to receive the 2022 Ag Census this fall. Every voice matters. To sign up or learn more, visit nas.usda.gov backslash agcensus. Thank you. Mike Rowe here with a gentle reminder that civilization is held together by pipes, wires, and cables.
1: It's true. There are over 5 million miles of gas lines, power lines, fiber optic lines, water lines, and sewer lines all buried beneath your feet. And every 60 seconds, somebody digs into one. Look, if you're thinking about digging around, do yourself a favor and call 811 first just to find out what's down there. Trust me, you don't want to find out the hard way.
5: Call or click 811 before you dig and visit safeexcavator.com for more info.
3: a message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org.
0: You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world Well, folks, thanks for tuning in to AOA Today. Yesterday, the Senate Ag Committee got to work on a couple of bills that have been hotly discussed in the ag industry for the better part of this past year and saw some forward movement on these bills. Now, there's still a lot of discussion left ahead. So in order to make sure we've got the right facts at hand, I've asked Tanner Bramer. He is with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. He's the vice president of government affairs to join us today. Tanner, thanks for joining us here on AOA.
8: Absolutely, Mike. Thanks for having me back.
0: So let's talk what the Senate Ag Committee did yesterday. They took up a discussion on the Cattle Market Price Discovery and Transparency Act of 2022. Tanner, what did the Senate Ag Committee do with that particular piece of legislation?
8: Well, it was disappointing but not altogether surprising that the Senate Agriculture Committee marked up that particular piece of legislation. Now, that that bill contains a lot of different provisions, uh, many of which NCBA supports. However, Uh, The the sponsors of this bill, despite our multiple attempts to try and make that into a product that can be supported by not just NCBA, but the American Farm Bureau Federation and a host of cattle producing organizations on the state level, uh, those those efforts just were were unsuccessful because uh, the sponsors did not uh, want to have that conversation with us, so uh, the bill does contain a provision which would mandate specific types of trades in the fed cattle industry uh, and those those trades are negotiated style, but it's not just uh, what would constitute a negotiated trade under USDA's definition. And because it would place an undue mandate on cattle producers and the methods that they use to transact cattle, uh, we have to be opposed to this legislation. We were disappointed to see it get marked up in the Senate Agriculture Committee yesterday.
0: Tanner, NCBA has been discussing this legislation and the ramifications of its passage for some time with your members across the country. What is it that your members might lose should this legislation pass that would hurt their ability to do business?
8: Well, in actuality, and in, in the simplest form is, it would put the federal government in the position of choosing winners and losers in the marketplace. You know, this bill would require that on a regional basis, every single fed cattle transaction. Uh, would be subject to certain thresholds or quotas if you will of certain types of trade and so if uh, we get through a covered period and, and the packers have purchased all the cattle that are that are offered on those types of methods and they still haven't hit their threshold, they're going to need to go to some of their producers and some of their suppliers and say hey look i'd like to buy your cattle but i can't buy them the way that you want to sell them because we have to hit this arbitrary threshold that's been established by usda and so those producers might miss out on premiums that are attached to grids. They might lose out on some of their risk management opportunities because they might not, they might not be able to uh, give up some of those arrangements and then have to sell cattle at a later date. As we know, finished cattle, once they reach their target weight, are a perishable commodity, and they have to go to, to the packer uh, relatively quickly once they achieve that target weight. So ultimately, you know, we're, we're deciding you know, between what producers have access to these critical tools and which ones Uh, unfortunately, are going to be told that they can't sell cattle the way that they want to.
0: And it comes back to that mandatory minimum purchase requirement. Now, Tanner, I understand that uh, Senator Marshall of Kansas proposed an amendment to the bill that would eliminate that particular segment of this bill. And that amendment was pulled. Do you think that might have traction once this gets to the floor of the Senate?
8: Well, I think assuming that the bill gets to the floor at all, that is something that I think would be pretty widely supported among senators who represent cattle states but might not serve on the Senate Agriculture Committee. You know, we heard a lot yesterday in the markup about how Both this bill and the other bill that was considered are are bipartisan uh, in nature. But I think the thing that has been less discussed is that they are also uh, subject to bipartisan opposition once you get off the committee. We saw senators from Nevada uh, weigh in in a formal way, both Democrats saying that they oppose the bill. And you have a host of Republicans from cattle states that are also opposed to government or to government mandates. Um, and so I think that in the event that the bill reaches the floor, which I don't know what the likelihood of is, just given how much how little time is left uh, on the calendar this year, uh, that that could very well be a discussion that senators want to have in the context of the full Senate.
0: All right. And you mentioned we don't know if this is going to make it to the floor. The next step would be, though, a floor vote from the Senate and then uh, some kind of of a conference with the House and the Senate versions. Are there big differences between the House and Senate versions
8: of this bill? So, uh fortunately, the Cattle Price Discovery and Transparency Act does not have a House companion which has advanced through the legislative process. It's been introduced, uh, but it has not had a hearing or a markup in the House Agriculture Committee. Uh, on the special investigator side, on the other hand, however, that that bill obviously did clear the House of Representatives a couple weeks ago, um, and Senator Grassley, in the markup yesterday, offered an amendment which would bring that bill more so in line with uh, what the House passed last week or the week before that. Um, and so it's it's unclear. We haven't seen the, the specific language to know whether or not that would require them to have some sort of a conference or whether they can uh, make those technical revisions before it gets on the floor and negate the need to do that. Um, but again, in the, in the US Senate, you have to get 60 votes in order to invoke cloture and proceed to final passage of this legislation or any bill that comes up in the Senate. Um, And I I don't know, again, what the likelihood of that is, just given uh, how how controversial these issues are off the committee and how little time there is remaining between here and when Congress goes uh, on recess in August and then goes home to campaign for the midterm elections.
0: Well, Tanner, you raised the issue of that meat special investigator bill, meat and poultry special investigator. Now, that was also marked up yesterday, as you mentioned. What were there any big changes to that bill during the discussion?
8: No, there there were some additional amendments that were offered and then subsequently withdrawn. Uh, the only amendment that ended up getting adopted was that one from Senator Grassley, which just makes a few technical changes to make it more more similar to the version that passed the House of Representatives. But it is still a, a bill that is duplicative. It's a solution in search of a problem, and it would uh, ultimately result in less effective enforcement of the Packers and Stockyards Act in the form that it's currently uh, marked up in.
0: Tanner, that is a big point. Why would this bill reduce in less enforcement of the PSA?
8: Well, you have two different agencies at USDA, should this bill get passed, that are charged with doing the exact same thing. The Packers and Stockyards Division, which is an existing agency of USDA, it's been around for over 100 years in some form or fashion, and they enforce the act in its entirety, including competition matters and including among meat packers, which are Uh, regulated entities under the Packers and Stockyards Act. If we create this brand new office and charge them with doing the exact same thing, we're creating these blurred jurisdictional lines that's just going to set up confrontation between Packers and Stockyards and the Special Investigators Office over who actually has jurisdiction over the matter. And those conflicts will take time to resolve. And then in addition to that, this bill continues to be unfunded, which means that they are going to have to steal resources away from other critical programs at AMS like the Packers and Stockyards Division, in order to have the necessary resources to execute that mission of that special investigator's office. Uh, So, it'll result in less effective enforcement between those jurisdictional battles, and then even from a resources perspective, because we know that the Packers and Stockyards Division hasn't received a substantial budget increase in over a decade, and they are, by their own estimates, about 52% underfunded and 40% understaffed
0: okay yeah that would create some some trade-offs in enforcement i think it's fair to say tanner i did want to ask you about that amendment introduced by grassley you mentioned it would conform the senate bill to the house bill he also added language that the investigator would need to be a senior career employee at usda what's the thinking behind that phrase how does that change the enforcement or the, the the anything with this bill
8: well, unfortunately, that particular amendment did not alleviate any of the livestock industries. NCBA included concern with the underlying legislation. Uh, that, that amendment uh, specifically mirrors one that was offered by Congressman Costa in the House markup, and the logic there is that it would create this position as a senior career as opposed to someone who is politically appointed and reports to the secretary in a political context. As a career position, the idea is that that person would be a little bit more established, they would maintain that position uh, through changes in administration or changes in the White House, and they would uh, be be less inclined to follow the whims or the political agendas of whoever happens to be the Secretary of Agriculture at the time. But again, that doesn't alleviate some of the underlying concerns we have elsewhere.
0: Absolutely. Tanner, this bill you mentioned has already passed the House. It's now out of the Senate Ag Committee. Do you think it's going to make it to the floor of the Senate before they head to recess?
8: You know, a lot of things are going to need to come together in order for either of these two bills to get their time on the Senate floor. Um, you know, the, the Senate just announced that they have uh, that bipartisan gun package that they're working on. There's a lot of other issues that need to come before the full Senate. And, of course, that 60-vote threshold is going to be difficult to achieve on both of these pieces of legislation because of that bipartisan opposition once you get off uh, off the committee. What I imagine will probably happen is if they're going to move it at all, it will need to get packaged together with some other legislation that is viewed as must-have and will ultimately need to get moved before they all go home for the midterm.
0: All right. We'll keep an eye on bills heading to the Senate floor. Tanner Bremer of NCBA, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks again, Mike. And folks, stick around, we're gonna turn our focus to another type of protein production in this country, aquaculture, when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away, more AOA coming right up.
5: Corn is native to the American continents and was unknown to the rest of humanity until Columbus arrived in the New World in the 15th century. It took less than 100 years after Columbus's discovery for corn to be introduced to farmers in Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Pacific Islands. After wheat and rice, corn is the third most cultivated crop in the world. The four nations that purchase the most corn from the United States are Mexico and Colombia, who use it as a food ingredient, and Japan and South Korea, who buy it mainly for animal feed
7: You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, as we take a look here at the market trade, working through our mid-morning, we continue to see heavy pressure in the grains as more recession fears are weighing on the market trade here as we get into this Thursday. U.S. equities markets are regaining a bit of ground, though, despite the recession talk. The Dow Jones up slightly here this morning. Crude oil is kind of oscillating around the unchanged markets. Kind of interesting to watch as we've really just been generally sliding from highs for more than two weeks now with the trade fearing a recession resulting from the Federal Reserve's policies. But we are still seeing crude oil above $100 a barrel, although it is well off the highs around that 120 dollars 125 mark now, the grain and oil seeds clearly pointing in the downward direction as the week progresses with volume strengthening to support the move as well. And forecasts more varied going forward, but generally avoiding the hot and dry conditions that have stressed crops to this point. The trade has another week to wait until the June 30th stocks and acreage reports looking at those improving forecasts in the meantime, while wheat weighed by harvest pressure from the U.S. Plains and really the trade is tired of all the talk for major powers about getting grain out of Ukraine as the war drags on there. And we've seen Russia bomb a few more grain terminals here yesterday in Ukraine. Taking a look at numbers, July corn down 19 and a quarter, 748 and 3 quarters. December down 30 and 3 quarters, 663. July beans 47 and a quarter lower, 1605 and a half. November down 45, 1431 and a half. Bean meal, bean oil down hard. Chicago wheat July down 24, 952 and a half. July KC wheat down 24 and a half, to 3 quarters. July spring wheat down 17 and a quarter, 1088 and 3 quarters. are higher. June live cattle up 55, 136.67. August feeders up 252, 175. Sixty-seven. July hogs down one eighty-two. One ten oh two. This is AOA. I'm Jesse Allen.
6: Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle.
5: I like that too.
6: Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council.
0: This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Well folks thanks so much for making AOA a part of your day today. We're going to talk next about a different aspect of American agriculture. Of course we are a huge industry encompassing not just the row crops we're used to here in the Corn Belt but we've got forestry, we've got fisheries, we've got all of these things that come together and one of the things we talk about a lot with regard to American agriculture in particular is that we are an export-driven industry. Whether it's corn, beans, dairy, you name it, the American producer, does such a great job that we have to have an export market to sell into. However, there are a few exceptions for American food products where we do import the majority of that product, and one of those areas is seafood. We have a massive seafood trade deficit with the rest of the world, and maybe it's time to ramp up production of fish here in this country. That's the thesis behind Nicholas Sullivan's new book, The Blue Revolution, hunting, harvesting and farming seafood in the information age. Nicholas is a senior fellow at the Fletcher Maritime Studies program and a senior fellow at the Council for Emerging Market Enterprises at Tufts University. Nick, thanks for joining us today.
9: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Let's start by defining what we're talking about here in aquaculture in Iowa. I'm very familiar with some folks discussing shrimp or perhaps tilapia raising on the land, but the industry is much bigger than that, isn't it?
9: Well, globally, for sure it is. Uh, Aquaculture is the fastest growing form of food production in the world. Um, And the U.S. is has a very, very small share of that market. I think maybe 1% of the global market. Um, so the, the global market is about 60% freshwater and about 40% uh, marine th- seawater. And what I focus on in the book is the marine um, or mariculture, marine aquaculture. Um, so, yeah, the U.S. has a huge trade deficit, $17 billion. And uh, interestingly enough, I was just looking at the 1980 National Aquaculture Bill Act, um, which was written, among other things, to reduce the U.S. seafood trade deficit. So here we are, you know, 40-some years later, and um, I don't know what it was then, but certainly it's bigger now than it was (laughs) then.
0: And so we've got this law in place, as you mentioned, it's been there for for 42, 44 years now, almost. We have not seen this industry thrive in the way that you would expect, given the prices and the demand from consumers. Nick, what is it that has kept maritime aquaculture from performing to its its full potential?
9: Well, um, you know, one thing is that Americans, the majority of the seafood that Americans eat is farmed shrimp and farmed salmon. And canned tuna, all from the other side of the world. So the farm shrimp and farm salmon are just huge um, uh, favorites of American people. Um, the other interesting thing about aquaculture is that globally, at least for mariculture, marine aquaculture, 70% of it is shellfish and kelp. People always think about, you know, fin fish uh, and salmon, uh, but it's shellfish and kelp and that is true in the US if you look at the East Coast in, in particular uh, tons of um, particularly oyster some mussel farms and kelp so um, yeah it, it the, the push is to um, is to drive well two things one is driving um, sea fin fish production onto land there are a lot of land based farms now starting um and or to drive it offshore into deeper colder water with stronger currents because you know there was a lot of um pushback against the norwegian salmon farming in the 90s because of the degradation of the seafloor and uh, the disease spread and so forth so the industry and- has moved in directions
0: Okay, going in both directions, and I mean, I, I think of the prices being paid at the store for those fin fish in particular, and I'm wondering, it, is the reason the industry isn't thriving because of a patchwork of regulation? You mentioned that 1980 National Aquaculture Act. Have there been any other modernizations of the oversight for uh, aquaculture or mariculture?
9: Uh no there hasn't really um you know ted stevens who was part of the Magnuson stevens act uh regulating op- um, marine fisheries starting in 1976 he introduced the bill in congress in 2005 for aquaculture that failed it failed in 2007 2009 2011 and so the bill now the aqua act now uh, was introduced in 2018. So it has been going for four years. Um, so no, there's been no, um, uh, legislation passed to regulate aquaculture since 1980
0: so i'm curious then about this aqua act the advancing the quality and understanding of american aquaculture that as you mentioned it's been floating out there since 2018. what does this act try to do to to make that industry bring it up to speed i suppose
9: well the one thing is so now there are so many federal agencies involved in permitting and that's probably always going to be the case i mean we got the department of Agriculture, which is the lead agency Department of Commerce, which you does you know, off, you know, offshore, um, Army Corps of Engineers, Fish and Wildlife, uh, Science and Technology. Um, so there's a lot of agencies involved. This bill in particular ch- tries to, to establish the Department of Commerce or NOAA Fisheries as the lead um, uh, agency in permitting uh, marine aquaculture.
0: Right now. So basically, really... this would make this new age, well, NOAA Fisheries or the Department of Commerce would become a, a one stop shop for folks beginning that permitting process.
9: Well, I don't think it's a one stop shop because I said there still will be a lot of federal agencies involved. You know, there's a lot of when you're talking about the ocean, of course, there's a lot of spatial planning in terms of navigation channels, other fisheries like the um uh whale migration uh, shipping lanes and so forth so there's a lot of agencies that have to be involved but it would establish department of commerce and NOAA as the lead agency um and right now usda
0: And I understand, Nicholas, there's also this uh, interaction between the states and the federal agencies when it comes to oversight. How do those rules and laws work for these operations that might be interested in going offshore?
9: Right. Good point. I mean, so as far as um, the states regulate, um, state waters are up to three miles offshore. Each state manages up to three miles offshore, and they are kind of the driver for permitting in their waters from between three miles and 200 miles, which is the exclusive territorial limit of the U.S., is federal water, and that is, um, you know, under the aegis of federal agencies. Um, so, you know, there's most of the aqu- aquaculture in the U.S. now uh, is in state waters. There's almost none in federal waters. And that's really what this bill is trying to uh, help promote, you know, to to make it easier and more efficient to get permitting for offshore aquaculture.
0: Of gotcha. As uh, they push farther off and into deeper water, naturally, they might need to be more than three miles offshore. Is that the thinking? That's
9: the thinking. Correct. Yeah. And of course, it's uh, controversial, as you might imagine. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a lot of people say, we don't want industrial fish farms. We don't want this. We don't want that. And, um But for the moment, we've got nothing. So um, that's really, I think, what is the driver behind uh, this bill is to say, let's really, we need a national plan, a strategy. Otherwise, our seafood deficit is going to keep increasing. And, you know, interestingly enough, the U.S. has got the second most ocean territory in the world after France, if you take all its territories and continental uh land 200 miles out it's got tons of ocean territory so we should have a bigger um aquaculture footprint in the world
0: yeah i think that's the the juxtaposition that surprised me most is we have a tremendous amount of ocean territory and yet we are the world's number one importer of fish and i'm curious you mentioned there the pushback to these bills in the past the idea of industrialized fish farming is is that sort of environmental concern, the chief reason these bills haven't moved farther down the line?
9: Uh, I think so. That's one. The other is, of course, wild capture fishermen have a strong lobby, and they always say this is just going to compete with us. Um, So that's part of it. Um, But I'd say the environmental lobby is probably the, the strongest. And, you know, there's, is good reason for it i mean there was a salmon farm in um off, uh, off state of washington where there was a huge uh, of atlantic salmon grown in the pacific and there was a huge escapement say, three four years ago and uh so there is cause for concern catalina island had in uh, off the coast of la had a offshore farm mostly mussels i believe um and they got they had all kinds of boats get caught up in their ropes and flipped, and someone was killed. So, there are definitely issues to be aware of. But,
0: all uh, right.
9: You know, positive lots. Is-
0: yeah, I was going to say there's lots to come in this issue. Nick, before we let you go, where can folks find your book?
9: Uh, well, it's in bookstores, it's on Amazon. Uh, the publisher is Island Press. You can get it through their website. And uh, yeah, the Blue Revolution. Um, and it's half, half wild capture and half uh, aquaculture,
0: Covering the full gamut, folks, that's Nick Sullivan, the author of The Blue Revolution, Hunting, Harvesting and Farming Seafood in the Information Age. Nick, thanks for joining us today. And folks, stick around. We'll be talking to Mike Steenhook of the Soy Transportation Coalition when we return. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away, more AOA coming right up.
6: You are not your diagnosis.
4: A medical chart is not your identity.
6: And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too to be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone, because we are stronger together. We
3: drive the research for the cures we are finding.
8: We're fighting macular
4: degeneration,
6: retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum
3: of blinding retinal diseases.
4: We fund.
6: We fight. We We win. win. We, 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 we are, are the, the Foundation, Foundation Fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness.
8: Join the fight at fightingblindness.org.
4: I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and sweet. And earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win.
1: (laughs) Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too. Through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural
6: Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. It's been said that when someone you love has Parkinson's, you have Parkinson's. The Parkinson's Foundation knows that the disease doesn't just affect the diagnosed. It affects
3: everyone who supports and helps care for them. If you or someone you know is living with Parkinson's, a neurological disease that affects movement, we understand that it can be difficult to know where to find help.
6: If you have questions, the Parkinson's Foundation has answers. Answers for everyone in the fight. We can help you understand the disease. Help you find expert care and local support. Give you tips for living a better life. And share the latest research.
4: Find your answers and join us in the fight against Parkinson's.
6: To learn more, please go to parkinson.org. Or call 1-800-473-4636. That's 1-800-473-4636. The Parkinson's Foundation. Better lives, together.
7: Soil, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Soil Ship
4: Enterprise to explore soil life, to boldly grow where cover crops have never grown before.
7: Farmer's log, soil date 31655.4.
4: We've come across some strange but incredibly helpful life forms. We didn't have to
0: travel far to find them, but these organisms have proven invaluable on our trip through the solar system. They help feed us by nourishing and protecting our crops. They've built our soil structure to make it more resilient to the harsh weather we encounter. Our sensors indicate they're even helping us store carbon that plants take out of the atmosphere and put it back into the soil. As guess you can say, our living and life-giving
7: soil is the best thing to cling on to. Um, sorry. <laughs> That's soil-fleet <laughs> Visit your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today and learn more about the basics and benefits of soil health. This message brought to you by
4: USDA and this radio station.
0: every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, where we take a close look at the benefits of cooperative ownership. Each week, we'll host a new guest and discuss how you can get the most from working with your local cooperative. And we'll learn why farmers and ranchers just like you choose cooperatives to help them persevere and prosper. Tune in each Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Well, folks, if you have no doubtedly heard yesterday, President Joe Biden went before Congress and he called on them to remove or suspend, I should say, the federal gasoline and diesel taxes for the next 90 days. Now, obviously, a move like this is going to have impact. It's going to have immediate impacts on the consumer. And I was wondering what would this drop in fuel taxes mean for the American farmer? But then, of course, there's a longer term impact. What would eliminating the federal fuel tax do for infrastructure funding down the line. Well, one person tracks both of these issues, and that's Mike Steenhook, the executive director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. He was running the calculator yesterday figuring out how this could impact farmers in the short term. Mike, thanks for joining us.
1: Hey, it's good to be with you, Mike. Thanks for having me.
0: Let's say that Congress moves forward and repeals the gas and diesel tax on the federal level uh, for the next 90 days. Mike, what's that gonna mean for farmers who are out there running trucks, burning that diesel every day?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the challenge, first of all, to define what a typical farmer is, because obviously the, the size of the, the, the operation, the productivity of the land, how far you drive to get to your delivery location, if you have different semi-weight limit allowances in state A versus state B, all these things really need to be taken into consideration. But if you kind of take just an, an average, you know, farmer that, you know, say farms over 1,000 acres, say a, say 1,000 a acres, uh, 600 acres of corn, 400 acres of soybeans, what kind of typical, typical typical yields, and let's say you drive 25 miles to get to your delivery location, obviously for some it's shorter, some it's longer, so what you're looking at is about uh, 95 cents a day if the the federal diesel tax is is suspended. So you you're a farmer with that kind of profile. You spend 95 cents a day in the federal diesel taxes. Obviously not for fuel total. Uh, that's exorbitantly more than that. But in the terms of the federal diesel tax, which is 24.4 cents per gallon of diesel fuel. Now if you if if states followed President Biden's suggestion of suspending their state fuel taxes on diesel fuel, if you suspend both the federal diesel tax and the state diesel tax average uh, throughout the country, a farmer would save $2.51 a day um, by not having to pay that both federal and state diesel taxes. And again, it, it, it depends on your operation and what state you live in. but. That's roughly what kind of savings that would involve.
0: All right, so we're talking about this tax holiday, maybe putting an extra nearly a dollar in our pocket per day if the feds go through with this, Uh, and of course more than if the states follow along, as you mentioned, Mike. I'm curious that that's not a huge savings uh, for a lot of folks, particularly given the amount of diesel that farmers are burning through. So I'm curious, Mike, look out long term, what would this holiday do for infrastructure funding? Obviously, we've got to get our roads and bridges back up to snuff across rural America. I can't imagine this would be helpful towards that end
1: yeah and that's the real big concern now that the president did suggest that congress find a way to provide more to provide the funding that uh the the highway trust fund or the the individual state trust funds uh use to maintain and improve infrastructure so there's been the suggestion now we we know that that'll either result in a some kind of fee or tax increase on one end, but more likely it'll just involve some degree of additional, you know, incurring additional debt um, to, to pay for that. And yeah, the, the concern that I do have is um, in order to maintain and improve infrastructure well and do it efficiently and economically, it requires a lot of planning. And for you to do that effective planning, you have to have a predictable and reliable funding source. And if, if all of a sudden, uh, and this is coming from me, who's a pretty a fiscal conservative, what, what bothers me is if you make the, the fuel tax more of a political football and it might be suspended for a period of time and then reinstituted and suspended again, that results in less predictable, less reliable funding for our infrastructure, which is very expensive and requires a lot of planning. And it's one of the most effective ways. Of escalating the cost of an infrastructure project is to have your funding mechanism be unreliable and unpredictable. Unpredictable. So that's that is a concern that I have. Look, we all get it that there's a lot of sticker shock when you're filling up your your car or your truck uh, with whether gasoline or diesel fuel. That is a reality, and that and we need to explore every opportunity to to address that. So, you know, I I, I certainly encourage this brainstorming that's happening right now, but I think we would be wise to understand that there are-there would be some consequences to this, and it it may not be-it may not be acceptable to us if we've got this priority, which most Americans do, to have a well-maintained, well-capitalized, efficient multimodal transportation system.
0: Absolutely. And Mike, we could see Congress replenish the Highway Trust Fund at the federal level. If the states were to follow through and repeal their gas taxes, would that have a bigger impact on infrastructure in those geographies? Yeah, you know, the, so the, the federal fuel
1: tax, which is 18.4 cents per gallon for gasoline, 24.4 cents for diesel fuel, those, and that's a six cents per gallon. Um, so whether gasoline is $2 a gallon or $4 a gallon, it's that six cents per gallon. That hasn't changed since 1993. Now, a lot of states, particularly over the last uh, you know, seven, eight years, they've increased their their fuel their state fuel taxes. So the states have a higher uh, fuel tax than than what's what's instituted at the at the federal level. Um, so yes, if if a state were to suspend their state fuel tax, that would obviously have more of a an impact on on, on someone's bottom line. Um, but again, the, 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 a lot of the states, that's gonna be a real challenge for them because a lot of states, their legislatures aren't currently in session. Now, some states have year-round legislatures, most states do not. And so how a legislature has come together in a short period of time and attend to that, that's a real big question mark.
0: Yeah, they are not known for moving quickly, broadly speaking, in the legislatures. Folks, we've been talking about this issue with Mike Steenhook, the executive director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. Mike, thanks for joining us today.
1: Hey, it's good to be with you, Mike.
0: And folks, tune in tomorrow. We're going to talk engine manufacturing in this country going forward. We'll see you then for more AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Don't you wish your life came with a warning app?
6: Stop. That dog does not want to be petted.
0: <laughs> a heads up before something bad happens.
6: You should not send that text.
0: Uh-oh. Life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. With early diagnosis and a few healthy changes, you can reverse pre-diabetes and prevent or delay type 2 diabetes. To learn your risk, take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners.
3: I drive my bus in a busy city. That's why road safety is so important to me. I know that I must slow down and be extra careful when I make a wide turn. Buses need more room than cars. Everyone can help keep our roads safe. Next time you're driving, remember to give buses plenty of time and space to finish turning before driving ahead. Let's all plan to share the road safely. Learn how at www.sharetheroadsafely.gov.